In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 49, the Bible reads, And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. The story of David and Goliath, a story that many of us have heard from our childhood up, a story of the underdog triumphing over great odds. We like that. We like when the unlikely becomes the hero, when the mighty are humbled, especially when the underdog represents good. Let's examine the situation. King Saul and the Israelite army were on one mountain, and the Philistine army was on another mountain with a valley between them. Out of the ranks of the Philistines came a giant named Goliath. He was their champion. Verses 4 through 11 of chapter 17 gives us this background. Goliath stood nine and a half feet tall. He had a helmet of bronze and wore a coat of mail that weighed roughly 150 pounds. He had bronze armor on his legs and a spear or javelin slung between his shoulders. Every day he would shout out to the Israelite army, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are not you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. He went on to say, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Verse 11 says that when Saul and all of Israel heard these words, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. We probably would have been afraid too. Now David comes on the scene. David was the youngest of his father Jesse's eight sons. Jesse's three oldest sons were in Saul's army, but David stayed home to feed his father's sheep. Jesse sent David with some food to give to his brothers and to, and to the commander of their regiment and to also bring back news of their safety. For 40 straight days, Goliath had taunted the Israelite army. This particular morning, David heard him. David took offense to this. He became angry. It seems he could not understand why Saul, the king of God's army and the army of God, would sit back and endure Goliath's challenges, threats, and insults. Verse 26 reads, And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should divide the armies of the living God? You see, Saul and all the rest of the Israelite army had forgotten the most important and the most crucial factor in this situation. They were relying solely on their own merits and capabilities to defeat Goliath. They were omitting God. They were not relying on God's strength and guidance to carry them through. By doing this, they were hindering God. 
David got into an argument with his brothers about why he was there and eventually wound up in Saul's presence. David said that he would go out and defeat Goliath. Saul told him he was no match for such a seasoned warrior as Goliath, but David refused to back down. He told Saul how he had killed lions and bears that had threatened his father's sheep and that Goliath would be no different. So Saul conceded. Oh, the cowardice of King Saul. He was completely willing to send David, a youth, to do something that he was afraid to do. But there was something special about David. He was not afraid. He trusted in God more than he did himself. To him, Goliath was no different than a lion or a bear. Obviously, David truly believed that with God's help, there was no obstacle that he could not overcome. Saul tried to give David his armor and sword, but David refused, saying he could not use something he was not familiar with. So David went out to face Goliath with his staff, his sling, and five smooth stones. Can you imagine the scene? We don't know how big or how tall David was. We know he was young, and there he is facing Goliath. If you've ever walked into a gym, gone on onto the basketball court, and looked at the goal, then you get a perspective of just how big Goliath is. The goal is 10 feet from the floor. No doubt with his helmet on, Goliath was just that tall. David is there with his everyday sheep herder's clothing on, and Goliath is decked out in full battle armor, armor that David probably couldn't even pick up. Who would you predict to be the winner of this confrontation? Goliath basically laughed at David and then cursed him. Then Goliath heard the last words of his life. David said, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword or spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. See, David was not hindering God. In fact, David was counting on and relying on God's help. Could God have defeated Goliath? Of course. Did God need David to fight his battle with the Philistines? No way. A mere verbal command from God and they would have been completely annihilated. Earlier we mentioned that David was the underdog facing Goliath. But in reality, Goliath was by far the underdog. God has always used mankind to do his bidding. God doesn't need mankind, quite the opposite but he chooses to use us. Did God need Moses to free his people from the bondage of the Egyptians? No. Even though Moses came up with several excuses why he was not capable of doing what God wanted, 
God still used him to do his bidding. Eventually, Moses got over his fear and became a great leader of God's people. Did God need Job to put Satan in his place? No. But God used Job in his faithfulness to prove to Satan that he is superior and that it is possible for mankind to have enough faith and trust to withstand anything. Did God need the Israelite army to encircle the walls of Jericho for seven days to make them collapse? No. Just a thought from God and his people could have easily walked in. Did God need Elijah to make fun of and taunt the prophets of Baal so that he could show he was and is the only true and living God? No. God could have burned up not only the bull offering, but anybody and everything else around. We could go on with example after example where God has used certain individuals to accomplish his will. Never has the all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present and eternal God ever needed a mere human to do anything. He simply chooses to do so. All throughout the pages of God's Word, we see example where God used people in certain situations and events to do His bidding. What we, feel, what we fail to realize is that God is in control. God has a plan and that plan will come to fruition. We can read and learn of God's plan from the beginning or from creation till present day. We can know what God's will is for us and for everyone else that walks this earth. It's simply a matter of trust and faith that God is who he says he is and that no matter how things seem, God will keep his promises. No doubt it's easier said than done, but we have examples of those that have gone on before us that have maintained their faith and trust in God. Isaiah 40, 29 through 31 reads, He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The prophet is saying that we can't survive on our own, even if we are young and energetic. The only way to endure this cold, hard, sinful world is to lean and trust on the Lord. On our own, we are nothing, but with God's help, we can survive this world and look forward to the world to come. So how do we do that? How do we put our confidence in God's plan? First, we have to know what that plan is. God has provided his word, the Bible, to reveal his plan. God is not going to miraculously reveal it to us. He will not force us to know his word. It will require some effort on our part. Then we must believe it and do what it says. James 1.22 reads, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. How can we deceive ourselves? By thinking that all we must do is know what God's word is. Why is it so difficult for us to do what we know we, must, we should do? There are several reasons that come to mind. 
the fear of being rejected, the fear of being ridiculed or laughed at, the fear of failure are often reasons that we fail. Notice the key word there, fear. But that's on us, not God. 1 Timothy 1.7 reads, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Still, we make excuses and we sell ourselves short because there are some things we just don't like to or we don't want to do. It's easy to think or say, I can't do that or I don't have that ability. And in some areas it's true. Not all people are blessed with the same abilities. There are things that you can do that I can't and vice versa. The Bible even talks about this. In Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, we read, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds or elders, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Perhaps we look at this passage in the wrong way. Maybe we see this and think that since I'm not a prophet or apostle or an elder or a teacher, that I am relieved of any responsibility. That is not the point. When we look at the context of the passage, we see that Paul is talking about unity within the body until all have matured in the faith and knowledge. In verse 16, Paul goes on to say, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. In other words, there are not any members that are not necessary, no matter how small or insignificant they may seem. And we can very easily add to that list. After teachers, we can insert nursery attenders, lawnmowers, hospital visitors, cookie bakers, note or card writers, hand holders, visitor greeters, and the list goes on and on. The point is that anything we can do, no matter how trivial it might seem, that could possibly point someone toward God, we have an obligation to do. Jesus fed the hungry, healed the sick, raised the dead, but he also washed feet. And he did these things not just from the standpoint of kindness and compassion toward humanity, but to try and make them see God to establish their faith. That is why we are here, to bring people to Christ. Jesus commanded his disciples verbally and us through the scriptures to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. A big charge, no doubt. But Jesus also said in Mark 9:41, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong, belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. A cup of water. How hard is that? Who couldn't do that? We mentioned earlier that God has a plan and that we can know and understand that plan because it is revealed to us through his word. We don't have to be an uninformed or ignorant people. Very early in God's word, we see God condemning Satan 
and sentencing him to his eternal destiny for what he did to Adam and Eve. Genesis 3, 14. In the very next verse, God reveals to mankind the hope of salvation through Jesus. God goes on to punish Adam and Eve for their transgression, but he does not abandon them hopelessly. We see the character of God revealed. We see the love, the mercy, the compassion, but also the justice of God throughout his word. We see how he dealt with those who obeyed and with those who did not adhere to his precepts. Eventually, the world became so wicked that God destroyed all but eight souls. We see, we see from how from Noah's descendants the world repopulated. We see how God used Abraham, a righteous man, to separate himself from his people and start the beginning of God's chosen people. We see how God used Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, descendants of Abraham, to further his plan. We see how God used Moses to deliver his people out of Egypt and lead them in the wilderness. We see how even though the people continuously sinned, God would have mercy and forgive them when they repented. We see how God used Joshua to take the realm from Moses and continue to lead his people. We see how God used the judges such as Samuel to communicate with the people and guide them in the ways of the Lord. Time after time, we see the people rebel and sin, and when they would get in trouble, come whining back for someone to make intercession between them and God. We see how God used Ruth, even though she was not of the chosen people, to play a part in Israel's most famous king. We see how even when the people rejected God and wanted a king, God would use certain kings to lead them in the right way. We see how God used Job to show Satan that man is capable of being righteous. We see how God used Esther to overturn a plot which would have eliminated the Jews in Persia at that time. We see how God used the great prophets like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, and Joel to communicate between God and his people, to point out the rampant sin of the people, to encourage those in captivity to exhibit sincere faith and confidence in God, even in the presence of great persecution, to show deep compassion and loyalty, to instruct the priest in their required duties, and to live an example of godliness. We see how God used Amos, a native of Judah, to denounce the people of the northern kingdom for their idol worship, corruption, and oppression of the poor. We see how God used Jonah after much resistance to preach to the Assyrians in Nineveh, causing them to repent. We see how God used other prophets to speak out against false prophets, to warn sinners of the wrath of God and call for repentance, to cry out for forgiveness for God's people, to proclaim the remnant of God's people, to complete the reconstruction of the temple, to prophesy the Messiah to come, and to rebuke Israel for their shallow worship practices. We see how God used Joseph and Mary to be the earthly parents of Jesus, the Savior of the world. We see how God used John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus. We see how God used Jesus, his only son, to humble himself and die a cruel and unjust death to completely reveal God's plan to reconcile a sinful world back to him. We see how God used the apostles like Paul to teach and spread the church throughout the world. We see how God used ordinary men, even though they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, to write what they had seen, heard, and experienced, 
so that we could have the Bible and know what God requires of us. Over and over we see how God has used man to carry out his plan. It seems that there was always someone at the right time, in the right place, and in the right situation to do their part. In our world today, people would call that karma or fate or circumstance. We hear it all the time. If I had not been there at the right time, then so or so or whatever might not ever have happened. But people that think like that are omitting and leaving out God. Now, we're not saying that God is responsible for everything that happens. People make choices every day that cause certain results that have nothing to do with God. But if we look through the Bible and see and understand God's revealed plan, we can understand how everything came about. It was not karma or fate or circumstance. It was God's plan. God's providence placed whomever, whenever, and wherever they were needed to fulfill that plan. No, we cannot explain it. We don't completely understand it. But if we have faith and trust in God, we accept it. We are not God. We don't think, act, or understand like God. We begin this morning talking about David and Goliath. How David showed his trust and faith and confidence that God would make him victorious. We mentioned that David did not hinder God, but that he allowed God to work through him. We looked back through the Bible and saw some of the many examples where individuals did the same thing. Most of the examples we talked about required a lot of faith and trust. But there are many examples of people who did things that were not monumental. A lad had some bread and fish that Jesus used to feed 5,000 people. All we really know about Andrew is that he went and told Peter, his brother, about Jesus. There was a man named Joseph that let Jesus be buried in his tomb. We could find many other examples where people did seemingly unimportant, trivial, or insignificant things. We all cannot be great heroes of faith. We cannot all do monumental things to serve our God. But there is something that every one of us can do. This is the crux of the lesson. And I'm talking to myself just as much, if not more, than anyone. The title of this lesson is, Am I Hindering God? As said before, God has used, is using, and will continue to use humans to do his work or complete his plan. We talked about the providence of God. If we look back at everything that's happened in God's word to reveal his plan to us, it does not even seem logical that all of those people just happen to be at a certain place at a certain time with certain abilities and certain attitudes in order to complete God's plan. No way. They were there because of God's providence. So my question to all of us is this. Has God put me in a specific place at a certain time to say something or do some small act of kindness that could possibly allow Jesus to be seen and change the destination of a person for eternity. We know he has. 
What did we do? Did we speak up? Did we do something? Maybe sometimes we did, and other times we didn't. Have we ever left somewhere and thought, I should have said that, or I should have done this? Shamefully, I have. If we are truthful with ourselves, we all have. Colossians 3.17 reads, Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Whether we are young or old, multi-talented or not, God has placed us here in this place at this time. Are we doing all we can for God? Even the little seemingly insignificant things could possibly make a huge difference in someone's eternal destination. Whether we are a giant slayer or a card writer, are we using our ability or are we hindering God? If you are not a Christian and you definitely know that you should be one, you are definitely hindering God. If you desire to become a Christian or if you feel the need to make reconciliation with God or if there is any way in which we can assist you, please come now as we stand and sing.